Kia ora, I'm Sarah Robson, and today on The Detail. We're a nation of givers. Last year, we donated more than $4 billion to the 28,000 charities in New Zealand. Please donate at Women's Refuge. After family, please include us in your will. Without your help, the phones will go dead. With your help, all Kiwi kids can have a fair start to life. They employ 145,000 people, and more than 200,000 of us volunteer for them. Riding for the disabled is life-changing for our riders. Help us provide care, comfort and hope, and fund vital cancer research. Each year, with your help, we rescue and care for tens of thousands of sick, injured, abused and abandoned animals. There are charities trying to alleviate poverty, rescue animals and research cures for cancer. But there are also charities researching cryonics and how to stop the ageing process. So what exactly is a charity? The Supreme Court has ruled Family First does not qualify for charitable status, saying the group's work doesn't fit the description. And will government moves to make the sector more transparent give us more confidence that our donations are being spent on the things we expect? Ollie Lewis is a senior journalist for Business Desk, and he's been part of a team of reporters investigating the charity sector. He's been following the Family First case through the courts. It's actually a very long story. So Family First was a registered charity. They were registered in about 2007. Uh, About 2013, the Charities Registration Board, which is this kind of independent three-person board which decides whether or not charities are charities, They decided to deregister Family First because they found that their political advocacy was essentially non-charitable. Family First appealed to the High Court. In 2014, you had this amazing Supreme Court decision about Greenpeace and whether or not charities could advocate for political purposes. Greenpeace has won a key legal battle that's cleared the way for political activists to also register as charities. The Supreme Court ruling says a group can't be denied charity status just because it has political aims. Following that, in 2014, the High Court said, look, Charities Registration Board, you need to reconsider um, Family First status in light of this. The board said, OK, and decided to reject them again in 2017. And then we <laughs> went through the entire process again, going to the High Court, the Court of Appeal, and finally to the Supreme Court, which issued its judgment that Family First was not, in fact, a charity. Here's a quick explainer. Believe it or not, the foundations of New Zealand's charity law date back to Elizabethan times. Yes, Elizabeth I. And the English Statute of Charitable Uses Act 1601. The four heads of charity are used to decide what is and isn't a charity. They are the relief of poverty, the advancement of education, the advancement of religion, and any other purposes beneficial to the community. Now, they come from an English court case decided in 1891, and they've since been included in our 2005 Charities Act. So back to Ollie and Family First. Family First was making a case that they were a charity based on the second head, which is the advancement of education. So they were kind of saying to the Supreme Court, look, here's our research material. They provided about 17 papers that they produced over the last few years to the court. And the court had a look at these papers and decided that, no, there is an educational value here. This tends to err on the side of advocacy. And with the Greenpeace case, some forms of political advocacy are 
essentially fine and or deemed to be charitable. But Family First didn't qualify or they didn't get the same um, status as Greenpeace because of the the way that they advocated for their positions and also the positions that they were taking, the court didn't accept that they were uh, as charitable as protecting the environment or human rights, essentially. The other argument that Family First made was that it was it was a charity under the fourth head, which is kind of any other purpose or that it's beneficial to the community. And their purpose is to kind of promote traditional ideas of marriage and family. And so they hold a marriage to be between a man and a woman and their biological children, essentially, which kind of discriminates against other forms of family. And so the judges had to look at that and decided that because it wasn't self-evidential that Family First was benefiting the community with its purpose, that it was, in fact, discriminatory against other forms of marriage and kind of same-sex couples, etc. And therefore, there was no kind of self-evident public benefit. Family First's Bob McCoskery was interviewed by Q&A's Jack Tame. The court ruled that expressing a viewpoint was not an automatic disqualifier, but that charities must genuinely seek to educate rather than to solely advocate for a political position. I sat down with Family First Chief Executive Bob McCoskery and asked him for his reaction to the ruling. Well, we obviously disagreed with it uh, vehemently. We think they've got it wrong. Part of the problem is that the rules, I guess, aren't particularly clear, and that's why it's being left to the Supreme Court to make decisions on this sort of thing? Yeah, so that's essentially how charities law has developed and has done for centuries. So we've got the Charities Act, which passed in 2005, and that's our main statute or law that kind of governs what is considered charitable. But it's left, not deliberately vague, but it is left open to interpretation. Like it's got quite four quite broad categories that charities can apply to be charitable under, essentially. But it's left to the courts to thrash out what actually falls under those categories. So you have this body of case law developing which where the courts essentially say, yes, we agree that this is charitable, this isn't. And that helps kind of define what is considered a charity in New Zealand. What the court said was that our, our education attempts had veered into um, advocacy and therefore we were pushing a view and they didn't think a charity should do that. But my, my question back to them and to, to people who perhaps are applauding the decision is, well, uh, Greenpeace presented a 100,000 petition on Thursday at Parliament. Mm. That's advocacy, they're pushing a view. Is there a risk here that, um, I mean, people might perceive this as the Supreme Court actually making political judgments of what is and isn't a charity? Is that a risk here? Uh, yeah, definitely. So, like, um, Family First has already kind of come out and slammed the decision and said that it's um, unjust and essentially that all they want is for there to be a level playing field and for the courts to be consistent about whether or not charities can advocate and can advocate for political purposes. The Helen Clark Foundation and the Drug Foundation were promoting legalisation of cannabis mm. while we were opposing it. They were pushing a view as well. So I think our concern is that it's not fair uh, and simply we need to be consistent about whether charities can do political advocacy. And to a layman, I can kind of understand why you would raise that. And... It's such a complicated area of law 
that it is kind of difficult to explain the differences between the Greenpeace case and Family First. So there's definitely a, a risk that people will look at the judgment and just say, okay, well, the judges prefer Greenpeace and its advocacy over Family First. And that that's a, a values judgment as opposed to something that has legal basis. Is there any way for you to regain that charitable status? No, that, that was the end of the line in terms of court processes. Ten years, it's cost us about three-quarters of a million dollars um, because we've been fighting this on the basis that the danger is that when the court determines what can be mm. and can't be said by charities, we're in a dangerous place. If you kind of dig into the details of the judgments, essentially with Greenpeace um, and its advocacy, the Supreme Court recognised that political advocacy and charitable purpose weren't mutually exclusive and not every form of political advocacy was going to be charitable. But things that were kind of self-evidently beneficial, like um, advocating on behalf of the environment or human rights, might be more charitable than something like advocating for the traditional form of marriage or taking kind of political positions on something like abortion or euthanasia, which Family First have done. But it is a very muddy and murky area of law and it's there are a lot of kind of opinions on either side about it. So it's going to be uh, litigated again, I think, in the future. We have more than twice as many charities in this country per person as they have in the UK. Let's talk a little bit about the charity sector more generally in New Zealand. I mean, how big is it? It's actually ginormous. It's um, We have 28,000 registered charities in New Zealand, which is, according to some people, amongst the most per capita in the world. There's a lot of duplication amongst the entities on the charities register. According to Charities Services figures, Charities Services is the body that administers the Charities Act, essentially, uh, about 145,000 people work for charities in New Zealand. And as of 2020, 2021, I think their income across all those 28,000 entities was something like $21 billion. So it's ginormous. It's a big sector. I mean, what's this kind of comparable to the income that they're bringing in? One comparison that I've seen is that it's equivalent to our dairy exports. Um, so it, it is a ginormous figure. I think the 145,000 people it employs, that's about 5% of the New Zealand workforce, I think. Um, again, these figures are quite high level and it's hard to really nail them down, but it does give you a sense of scale. And throw in some, you know, all the people who volunteer for charities, give their time, and then I guess the people who are giving donations. Yeah, and I think there's a little bit of a misunderstanding amongst the public about what constitutes a charity. So universities, for instance, are charities in New Zealand. Um, Iwi entities like the Naitahu Charitable Trust are charities. So you've got these really big players that actually make up the kind of lion's share of the assets and the income which is coming into the sector. And then you've got your more kind of small community group that, you know, plant some trees in the weekend or whatever, which are the more kind of common, commonly kind of thought of charities in the country. I've been doing some writing recently for businesses about some very interesting kind of life extension or cryogenics charities. And um, two of those, there's one called the Foundation for Anti-Aging Research, and then there's one called the Foundation for Reversal of Solid State Hypothermia, which uh, is into freezing bodies and cryogenics. So there's... Many, many things that charities do in the country, everything from providing social services to, you know, funding research into this kind of sci-fi-esque technologies. It's pretty broad. Do many charities get denied charitable status? 
I mean, there are the odd ones. You can go on the charities services website to figure out how many that applies to. But it's, it's not actually that many. So, and, and it's very few being deregistered as well. I think in the last four or so years, it's only been about four charities which have been deregistered for serious wrongdoing in New Zealand. We tend to have quite a, a, a lenient or enabling approach to registering charities, I think. So, no, to your question, there's not actually that many that are declined. And, of course, if we've got people looking at extending our lives um, to, I guess, you know, some of those more high-profile charities that, mm. that we probably are more familiar with, Women's Refuge. I never thought in my wildest dreams I would need to be accessing um, the Women's Refuge. Kids Can. Kids Can partners with schools and early childhood education centres across New Zealand to give Kiwi kids living in poverty the essentials they need to learn. It's such a broad sector. And I think it kind of flies a little bit under the radar. I was actually really surprised myself when I saw the, you know, the income figures or the asset figures. So look, of those 28,000 entities, they've got about $67 billion in assets. You've got charities like, I think it's Dilworth, which has been in the news a lot recently about sexual assault allegations and convictions in Auckland. That charity owns huge amounts of land in Auckland City, which is ginormously valuable, essentially just because it was set up so long ago and and owned a lot of land in central Auckland. So, yeah, the sector is very, very big, and typically public discourse around it tends to centre on the kind of bad boy charities, if you like, the um, typically church groups that say or do something offensive that then triggers like a public uh, call for them to be deregistered. Former members of a church in Christchurch want its charitable status removed. Charities Services has received more complaints about the Celebration Centre group than any other charity in the past five years. More than 80,000 people have signed an online petition to strip Destiny Church from its tax-free status after its bishop linked gay people with earthquakes. What happens when a complaint is made? Charities Services is the body that administers and deals to complaints. And it's a, it's a business unit within the Department of Internal Affairs. It's pretty small. There's only about eight people and its investigations team, and that's covering, as we've said, about 28,000 registered charities in the country. Of those, you know, we hope that not many are doing bad things, but some will be. With complaints, they, they typically get about 200, 220 complaints a year about charities. But as I said, it's very, very rare for charities to be deregistered for serious wrongdoing. There's a definition around what that is, and it's typically kind of things like you know, an officer of a charity committee an offence, gross misuse of funds, corrupt use of funds, oppressive behaviour. But for someone, if someone says something that you don't like, for instance, Destiny Church, that's not grounds to deregister the charity. If someone is an officer of that charity and they, they commit an offence which is related to the administration of that charity, then that might be enough grounds to get them kicked off for um, serious wrongdoing. But in Destiny's case, like there was a lot of furor about its um, anti-vax and anti-mandate involvement through Brian Tamaki. And understandably, people were very upset by that and complained to charity services, expecting them to be deregistered. And ironically, and perhaps good for charity services, Destiny didn't end up filing its annual returns that year and also in previous years. So they were, they were automatically deregistered, not because they'd done anything... Um, wrong in the public eye, but because they'd failed to, to do their paperwork. Can you point to a recent case of a charity that has has been found to have done something wrong that sort of was bigger than just 
failing to file their returns. So one I found quite interesting was this um, the Samoan Independent Seventh-day Adventist Church, which um, operates about 10 churches in Auckland. It takes tithes from relatively kind of poor areas of the city. And what happened was a few years ago, I think Charity Services received a complaint. It referred this onto the Serious Fraud Office. And what had happened was an employee or employees associated with the church had essentially stolen millions of dollars from the church. And also officers of the charity had made these really dodgy investments um, into things like OneCoin, which is a cryptocurrency, I believe. And obviously they're not doing so well at the moment. So that that is an example of serious wrongdoing. And so the Charities Registration Board heard the case. It found that there had been serious wrongdoing that had taken place. And so it deregistered the church and it kind of barred a couple of its officers from being involved with a charity for about six months. But incredibly, like the stand, the stand down period is so small that that church is has since been re-registered as a charity. So the consequences aren't particularly uh, severe. I mean, is this is this because our regulator just doesn't have enough teeth? Good question. I think it's a really interesting debate actually with charities. So uh, people hold very strong views on either side of this. There are some people that really think that the law should exist to be as enabling and supportive of charities as possible because there is meant to be a recognition that these are people who want to do good in the community and we should be helping them do that. So there's that kind of enabling and benevolent view of charities. And then you've got other people typically the wider public, uh, often fanned through negative media coverage, who view charities as kind of exploiting their tax-exempt status. This stuff with Family First doesn't matter. It's nothing compared to what is really going on. I reckon the bigger problem with charities is actually how many of them are running businesses and they're not paying taxes. And are very, very angry then whenever there's any kind of serious wrongdoing that kind of pops up. The regulator tends to take a pretty enabling view of the sector. Like, it it prefers education over enforcement. There are some offences in the Charities Act that it can prosecute with. Typically, as I said before, if there's any actual issue, it'll it'll refer cases on to agencies like the police or the Serious Fraud Office that actually have far more powers to do more than kind of slap them over the wrist. Back in 2018, the government ordered a review of charities law and last month it unveiled a raft of changes. Large charities will soon be required to explain why they've accumulated significant amounts of cash or assets. The government wants to make it really clear to charities that they need to be justifying in their annual returns why they have accumulated funds. The rationale behind that is that people give to a charity and they expect that their donation is going to be used to fund charitable services, which is what happens. But in a lot of cases, charities also want to keep strategic reserves or they might run a different operating model, which essentially requires them to, to maintain like a big asset base. And so what the government wants out of charities is they want them to, to explain and justify to the public why they're holding on to their money and not spending it. How big a step change is that? The sector didn't like it, so I've read a regulatory impact statement and when it was first proposed that this change happened, and this actually isn't a legislative change, this is something that can happen 
uh, under the existing Act, but it's just been kind of parceled in as part of this wider legal reform. The sector was quite against this because of the additional kind of administrative burden and the fact that they kind of think that they do already show through their annual reporting process where their funds are held. Charities in New Zealand are already subject to high levels of transparency and accountability. New Zealand registered charities are subject to the most comprehensive set of transparency and accountability uh, disclosure requirements in the world. But what this is going to require of them, it sounds like, is a, very, is a more kind of layman's explanation of, you know, this is why we have $200 million in the bank and we haven't spent it. Which And the rationale was essentially, like, if people care about a charity, they can look at their accounts and they can say, ah, I don't know why you guys are holding on to all this money when I expect you to be paying for services with it. It's about public accountability and, I guess, public trust that when they're making a donation, it is actually being Gonna used be for the purpose. <laughs> yeah, precisely, right? So, like, it's, um, I give to charity. I'm sure you give to charity, Sarah. Everyone gives to charity. And when you do so, you kind of want to know that your money, your dollar, is going to actually alleviate whatever cause it is you happen to, to, to want to support. And if it isn't, then you should know about it. That's it for today. I'm Sarah Robson. The detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Bonnie Harrison and Sharon Brett Kelly. And thanks to Ollie Lewis. Ka kite anō. Listener.